3. That's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, but I do want to do a bit of a review for what has led us here. In Genesis chapter 1, we discover a good creator God who forms and fills the cosmos as a temple for his glory and goodness. And he sets humanity, male and female, as his representatives or image bearers to reflect his goodness, acting as as kind of like high priests to the rest of creation. And Genesis 1 is this big picture perspective that underscores the fact that a good creator God created out of order, not out of uh, order and love, not out of violence, that the created world is very good and that humans have a special assignment. In Genesis 2, we watch as the creator God forms and fills Adam and then sets him in a garden. In Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis 15 to 17, we read, um, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and to take care of it, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So Adam is gifted and given this really grand invitation. You are free to eat from any tree, and it's got a very, very narrow prohibition. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And so the tree of life, this source of perpetual ongoing life, is open to Adam, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not, which causes us to maybe ask a question, what is up with that tree? Because the knowledge of good and evil, you could certainly argue that's probably a good thing to be able to differentiate between good and evil. Well, it's important to understand that the phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, is recognized by biblical scholars as a idiom or a cultural short phrase that is more than just the sum of its parts. It's used in all kinds of ancient documents and it refers to the capacity and the right to define good and evil for oneself. So even in pagan context, the knowledge of good and evil was seen as that which only the gods have. Not that humans don't know the difference between good and evil, but only the gods have the right to define what is good and evil. Now, to this point in the story, God has been the one defining what is good. He keeps creating and saying everything is good. But now Adam and subsequently Eve are going to be given this warning against seeking out this particular tree. And think about what it represents. It's a command against seeking to define good and evil for yourself. It's a command against pushing God off the throne and saying, you know what? I think I can do this. Or I think I have a right to do this. Or who is anybody to tell me I don't? I'll decide what's best for me. I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll decide what's good and evil for myself. I'll claim a kind of spiritual autonomy. I don't need God. And I'll just live from my own sense of right and wrong, good and evil. But God warns them that the cost of forsaking dependence on him and trusting and relying on his definitions 
is going to be death. The stakes are very, very high. This is how the retired pastor and theologian Daryl Johnson from Regent paraphrased this command of being able to eat freely from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Paraphrasing God, he says, Adam, you are what you are because of me, your creator. And you are a glorious creature. You are magnificent, maybe beyond what you yourself know, but I've made you to be dependent upon me for life. And all I ask of you is that you be you. You be a creature. You be a human being. You are free. But don't use your freedom to try and be something other than you are, a dependent creature. Don't try and be your own God. For all your magnificence, you cannot be your own God. You be you and I will be me. Do not try and be what I am. I tell you this for your own sake. If you try to be me, if you try to live independent of my love and power and grace, you will ruin your world and you will die. After this command given first to Adam, God builds Adam and Azar from his side, gives and gifts um, the man and the woman to each other. And then chapter 2, that scene ends with the man and the woman uh, being naked or not ashamed, living in this um, shalomic, peace-filled, harmonious uh, existence in this beautiful garden. If you're watching a movie, that screen goes black, and there's maybe a three or four count pause, then the screen emerges again, and uh, lights come on, and now there's a new character. A new scene has started, and a character we've never heard of or encountered before moves on to the scene. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Wow, this is a pretty weird passage, especially if you've never looked into it before. What is going on? If we think this garden scene with these two trees is strange, this kind of takes it to the next level. And some people's only theological entry point into this story are cartoonish Sunday school versions of Adam and Eve, strategically placed branches, in a garden, <laughs> snake on a branch, tempting them to disobey God. And because of that picture that people hold in their mind, this passage is actually a favorite among atheists or skeptics who just reject it on its face. They just treat it as a non-starter in terms of taking the Bible seriously with any rigor or sincerity, right? And their thinking would go something like this. I can maybe suspend my disbelief enough to say Genesis 1 and 2 are these creation accounts and they're of a particular kind of ancient literature that maybe doesn't demand to be taken scientifically, but it certainly has truths there and I can maybe appreciate in its context that there are some really important truths there. Um, 
I can, can see that there are lessons there, but okay, now we're into chapter three, and right out of the gate, there's a talking snake. Like, seriously? Like, no, re- no reasonable person today is going to be able to accept that. This just needs to be, you know, we just stumbled almost right out of the gate. And if there's any proof that you need for why the Bible is a um, false, unworthy guide to life, and certainly even into truth, it's right here. Like talking snakes. And I hear that criticism. I've heard it often. I understand that criticism. But if you are tempted to reject the Bible due to a passage like Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6, then what I'd at least invite you to do is do enough digging to ensure that you are rejecting a sophisticated understanding of the text and that you're not rejecting that cartoonish Sunday school version uh, quickly. Because if you bear with this text, even in the first verse, my experience is that there can be a bit of a turn and some of that skeptical, smug dismissiveness can actually weaken pretty quickly. And it can be replaced with some kind of meaningful curiosity. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Word for serpent there, up there in the high language is Hebrew for Nahaj. I'll be referring to it as Nahaj for the rest of the message. It's translated as serpent. But ancient Hebrew doesn't have vowels. You see the little squiggly-doos around the words at the bottom? Those are vowels that get inserted later. Ancient uh, Hebrew doesn't have vowels. And depending on where you put the vowels, that word is used throughout the Old Testament in three different ways. It is translated serpent or snake, totally legitimate. It's also translated as a diviner or an enchanter. And the, uh, the um, inference there is some who has some kind of access to divine knowledge or secret knowledge that isn't normally accessible to a earthly creature. So that's why... Um, in the Old Testament, God commands his people in Deuteronomy not to go to a diviner. Don't trust in those who seek to, um, or who posture as if they have access to kind of secret forbidden spiritual knowledge because of maybe their unique connection to angels or the divine or to gods. So it can be used to mean the diviner. And the third use, which is pretty interesting, is when it comes up as it relates to metals in the Old Testament, especially brass, it can refer to, it can be an adjective for shining. And so I think what's happening here is right out of the gate, the text is challenging us to just rocket past a very, very cartoonish view of a snake in a tree. There's a triple entendre happening here. There is a serpent-like creature who is posturing as if it has access to secret knowledge and can provide a pathway into a different kind of life, access to special information, and it's a shining one. It shines. You um, probably are unaware of this. Almost every translation translates snake or nahaj as snake, but the international standard version actually translates it as now the shining one was more clever than any animal of the field that the Lord God had made. This is why this is important. Because as the scriptural story unfolds, we come to understand that this is Satan. This is the great enemy of God. This is a fallen um, 
divine uh, being, spiritual being. And the snake is later revealed to be Satan, who, and there's an interesting connection between this word, uh, Nahaj, and Seraphim, which comes up in Isaiah, uh, early chapters of Isaiah, where Isaiah is given this um, vision of God and the throne, and the Seraphim are worshiping God. But what I think is important to understand here is that right out of the gate, what the scripture is trying to convey to us is this serpent is a mysterious, supernatural, beautiful being. And that's important to understand as the context for what happens in chapter 3 because it shows us that the source of temptation often presents itself as something beautiful and attractive. This is why I want to use the word nahaj for the rest of the message. If I say snake, you're going to picture the cartoonish version of the snake. If I say the devil, you're going to picture horns and a pitchfork. That is not what we're being invited to picture here. Much more subtle, much more seductive, something beautiful, right? That's why Adam and Eve don't run. They're expecting this being to talk. They're not like, whoa, a talking snake? There is this visitation of a supernatural being, but it is not scary. It's very, very beautiful. And I think just right there, you have an invitation to see this text as something very, very rich and sophisticated. And it confirms what we learn about Satan as God's revelation unfolds. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We should not expect Satan to show up on our doorstep with fangs and horns. Those, that's, that, those are um, pictures that the Bible doesn't actually give us. Those come out of medieval iconography about the devil kind of as a reflection of the devil's character and his ambition. But what the Bible teaches us to see the enemy of our souls as is something shining and beautiful. Something that would give us pause in the moment to consider what he has to say. And so the Nahaj says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Now again, you can read it quick. Don't read it quick. Look at two things. Number one, the Nahaj undermines God, God's word. God gives a command as simple as can be, and the Nahaj is like, did God really say that? Are you sure you heard it correctly? And then notice that he twists God's word. What was God's original command about every tree? You're free to eat from any tree, but the serpent misquotes God. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Right? Already there's a twisting. There's a, the words kind of, it sounds familiar-ish, right? Starting to play with Eve's mind, but there's this undermining and twisting of God's word. The, Nah- the woman says to the Nahaj, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And notice what's happening here. Eve restricts God's invitation and she exaggerates God's command. She says, um, she restricts God's invitation because she omits the words freely and any from the tree. Like we're allowed to eat from trees, but God's invitation was you can eat freely from any tree. It was a posture of radical generosity that kind of gets a little shrunk now. God said, that we can eat from the trees in the garden. 
So you're just sort of shrinking God's invitation. But she exaggerates God's command. What does Eve add that was not part of the command? Did anyone notice? You can't touch the fruit. It's not part of the command. God just said you can't eat of it. Right? So now she's... You kind of have this evidence psychologically that Eve is sort of like, you can eat freely from any tree. It's like, well, we're allowed to eat from some trees. And, and like um, the, the God's prohibition is actually bigger. Like it's not just like you can't eat it. It's like you can't eat it or touch it. So we don't know how much this is intentional on Eve's part. It's probably on one level innocent. But it's an interesting psychological dimension into often what we do, isn't it? where we tend to restrict and minimize God's generosity and we tend to sometimes even inflate God's prohibitions beyond what they were originally called for. And there's actually some slippage in the reference to God. In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, whenever it speaks of God, you'll see in your translations, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Uh, Yahweh, Lord, Elohim, divine one or God. But every time the Nahaj talks about God, it omits Yahweh. It just refers to God as the Elohim, just the divine one. And that's interesting, right? That's a subtle undermining. He's not the divine one who is Lord over all things. He's just the divine one. And the reason why that's significant is when Eve starts to talk about God, she omits Yahweh from Yahweh Elohim. When she says, oh, God gave us this command, she no longer refers to God as Yahweh Elohim, just the, div- just the divine one. There's a little bit of slippage of authority there that, yeah, definitely God. He, he's different than us. But loosening this connection to this one who is Lord over all things and therefore that I'm accountable to. Verse 4, the Nahaj says, you will not surely die. Right? The Nahaj is undermining God's trustworthiness. Did God really say that? That's not, that's not really the way things are. You're not going to die. He actually minimizes the consequence of God's command. And there's a really fascinating winding road of the language in here in terms of how the serpent talks about how the you will not surely die is framed in the Hebrew. And for those of you who want to do a deep dive, I can send that, those documents over to you. But one scholar says it this way, is that the serpent statement should be paraphrased something like, don't think that death is such an immediate threat. So he's not outright denying that they're going to die. He's just like, God got a little worked up and it was like, but like, it's not like it's going to happen right away. Like, you don't have that much to worry about. It's not as extreme as you were led to believe. It's not as immediate. There might be consequences, but they're, they're way down the road. So those aren't things that you should be worried about right now. And then the Nahaj continues. He says, see, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. You will know good and evil. So the Nahaj starts by undermining God's trustworthiness, but now he's undermining God's goodness. He's saying, not only is God lying to you, God is keeping you from something. 
I can understand how you look around, you see this garden, you see all this bounty, and you might say to yourselves, wow, this is wonderful. God has provided so much for us. What a, what a wonderful garden. Um, but I want you to understand something. And then the Hodge leans in and he says, this is not a garden. This is a cage. This is not a garden. This is a cage. And God wants to keep you here and wants to keep your eyes closed. He wants you to be blind. But if you listen to me, I can, I can open your eyes. And if you listen to me, I can liberate you from this cage. Because what God is scared of is that you will move beyond this and you will be in a position to usurp him. You will be like him. You'll be competition for him. And uh, you know what? I've done the math and I can see that too. You are a threat to God. You can become very powerful. But I want you to understand that all of these, this command, this generosity, I want you to see it from a different perspective. God is actually restricting you from life. He's keeping something from you. And you're blind. But if you listen to me, I can teach you how to see things for how they really are. I can give you freedom. Verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Just a little pastoral note there. The Nahaj's influence is rarely localized in our lives, meaning when we choose to listen to the voice of the Nahaj, it very rarely just affects us. In different ways, it gets passed on to those around us. We can't kind of contain it. Now, is there anything in this text, in these six verses, that in any way sounds familiar to any of you? Just raise your hand if you've heard any of these voices or these ideas before at some point in your life. I have. Did God really say? You think God's here to give you freedom? This is a cage. You want to listen to obey God? Obeying God will lead you deeper into slavery. But if you listen to me, I can lead you into true life and true freedom and power. And then you won't have to live under anyone else's rules or commands or edicts anymore. You'll be like God. You'll be able to determine good and evil for yourself. You will be accountable to no one other than yourself. And that will be true liberation. That's true freedom. That's the voice of the Nahaj. Not just here in the garden, but in our life, probably every day, if we're paying attention. Daryl Johnson, the person that I quoted from earlier, says, this story reveals something about the nature of sin. Sin is not just disobedience. It's not just rebellion. It's not just ungodly deeds. At its root, sin is unbelief, meaning counterbelief. Sin is a refusal to believe that the Lord God is the Lord God and not just divine, that he's a claim on me, that the Lord God is every bit as good as he says he is and every 
particular sin is the fruit of this prior sin of unbelief. This is a very powerful and important story because it shows us the strategy and schemes of the Nahaj in our own lives, in our marriages, in our churches, in our families, in our friendships, in the workplace. I don't want to minimize or deny that there aren't very violent and aggressive and scary examples of demonic possession or demonic oppression. Uh, I certainly believe in a spiritual realm that is occupied by some entities that are set against the purposes of God. But the foundation for understanding the schemes of the devil is Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6. And it's the Nahaj presenting something to us which is attractive and beautiful and then taking our uh, half-formed, sort of familiar, I think somewhere in the Bible it says this, and just starting to play with our minds. Did God really say that? You got that right? And then inviting us into an elevated sense of self. Are you sure you can really trust God? Like trusting God, but this thing isn't a big deal. But like this is your career. This is your marriage. This is, you fill in the blank. You really think that God's good? Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6, poses the most critical set of questions that you're going to face in your life. Can I trust the Creator? Whose voice is right? The Creator or the Nahaj? Whose voice am I going to listen to? And is the Creator for me or against me? Because that is really the subversive turn that the Nahaj is doing the whole time, right? It's like, I understand how you being here and being surrounded by so much beauty and glory, it would be very easy to assume God is actually for you, Adam and Eve. I understand how you would come to that, but that's a very naive, superficial understanding. This is all kind of a trick. It's a rouge. It's, it, um, it's, um, it's something that is it's an illusion. It's designed to placate you into submission. God isn't actually for you. God is a benevolent dictator who's trying to keep from you the power that could set you free. Daryl Johnson again. He says, so much of life around us makes it hard to trust. And he says, I know this. In a fallen world, so much seems to all question and call into question the character of a good creator. And the serpent uses that and twists those things to corrupt our minds, to encourage us to conclude that the creator can't be trusted. The serpent's voice to us is powerful. See, I told you, if you're having a hard time, it's because God isn't really for you. He does not want you to be alive. He does not want you to be free. As tempting as the voice of the Nahaj is, in your heart, in your ear, again, I'm using that metaphorically, don't let those lies settle into your heart. Genesis 3, this whole chapter is a huge warning to what happens when we allow the voice of the Nahaj to usurp the voice of God. And it's important to not just understand these as lies. They're not just mistakes. They're not just like, mm, these are damnable lies. These are lies that undermine the very foundation of what makes a relationship with God possible, right relationship to each other, 
with our own sense of identity and in our, our sense of connectedness to our vocation in the world. And the reason why we know they're damnable lies is because Jesus' life and death and resurrection prove just how false those lies are. It's not even an abstract argument. It's concrete. Jesus comes to rescue us. He becomes a human being, fully human, fully God. He dies on the cross to forgive and to save us and to remove the curse that we'll discover um, afflicts all humans because of Adam and Eve's sin. And he rises from the dead to break the back of sin and death and to lead, um, to lead a train into a new creation and to genuinely liberate people from the shackles of the serpent. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That is an echo to God's command in the garden. Freely gives all things. Adam and Eve didn't trust it, but Paul is saying you can trust that because of what God has done in and through Jesus, that God was totally trustworthy and totally good. And God does want to freely give us all things. God is good. God can be trusted. God and his most fundamental posture is for you. And so to those sitting in unbelief, meaning resistance to God, to these truths, I want to ask you just one question, and that is, are you ready to stop listening to the voice of the Nahaj and the lies of the Nahaj and turn from your pride and your spiritual self-sufficiency, your spiritual autonomy, a posture that says, maybe there is a God or ever, but I don't need God. I'll live life on my own terms. I'll live defining good and evil for myself. I will sit on the throne of my heart and my life. Are you ready to stop listening to that seductive, shining, beautiful-looking idea that just continually drives you into hopelessness and despair and to brokenness? And are you ready to turn to Jesus? and begin listening to his voice and the truth that can actually liberate you into new life. And to those sitting here in belief, you are in Christ, you are a Christian, have you found yourself tempted by the Nahaj's cunning at this stage of your life? During this season, have you found his voice sounding reasonable, helpful, Have you distanced slowly listening to God through his word and listened ever so eagerly to alternative promises for liberation, for freedom? Maybe you've heard the Nahaj's voice saying in different ways, you're working, you're striving so hard to serve this God who's got you in this place, but this, this is a cage. You're blind, man. Come to me, listen to me, come in this direction. I'll set you free. I'm the one who has access to the life that is truly life. And I want to say to you, if that's you, Christian, who are sitting here, don't be deceived. The Nahaj will always promise life and freedom. 
these words that are shining and beautiful and sound empowering, but in the end, they will result in despair and in death. And so resist the Nahaj and turn to Christ for hope and for strength. Let's pray. Sometimes because of what we see, God, sometimes because of what we experience, sometimes because of what we're invited to think about, we hear whispers in our own hearts that make it very tempting to call into question your goodness and your faithfulness towards us. God, protect us from spiritual deception. Train us to turn towards the cross of Christ in those moments and to realize you are for us. You gave your son Jesus. You willingly went to the cross so that we could, as Revelation says, we could have access to the tree of life once again. We could live restored and reconciled to you. You want to freely give us all things. It's your generosity. It's your grace that liberates us in the true freedom. Give us, protect us and give us wisdom and ground your word into our bones so that when the deceptions of the Nahaj come, we can identify them and we can resist the devil. And according to your word in Ephesians, he will flee from us. Help us to live into that truth and promise, God. In Jesus' name, amen.